Hello and welcome to Josh, who is joining us here on Dollars and Dragons, uh, my podcast. And I had to look at the banner to make sure I said it correctly. <laughs> That's how new at this I am, yeah. You know, D&D or something like that. What does it stand for? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Until it gets, until, you know, Wizards comes after me. <laughs> well, well, the good news is because you didn't use the word dungeons, you're probably safe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if uh, you would like to tell our guests, um, our listeners, uh, a little bit about yourself, uh, we can start with that. Yeah, sure, sure. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm of half of mine just to make them guess who I am, but uh, I realize this isn't a call and response. So uh, my name is Josh, Josh Simons. Uh, you can find me on the internet everywhere. Uh, my handle is at Joshua M. Simons. There's one M in Simons, two M's total. Anyways, um, uh, I am the community and content manager at Demiplane. Um, on top of that, I do some, you know, freelance tabletop game writing, uh, some streaming, some, uh, you know, performing on actual plays and, and things like that. So a uh, little bit of this, a little bit of that, um, kind of, kind of one of those things where uh, uh, on any given day, there's like a 50% chance that I'm doing something somewhere. And I don't know what that is half the time because... Uh, I'm disorganized and ADHD keeps me running in 12 different directions. Anyways. Yeah, I can tell, you know, I'm not going to say I can tell you have ADHD because I see you everywhere, but I do like your life and your presence on the internet just seems very ADHD. Like you're just, you're in a lot of places at the same time. And I'm yeah. just trying to figure it out. Like where there's like a, there's gotta be like a center mass somewhere, but then I guess for right now it's demi plate, right? Yeah, that's where, uh, you know, the vast majority of the stuff that I'm doing is. I, I would say that, like, a good eight to nine hours of my day is generally devoted to, right? Not ex not including weekends, but a good, you know, eight to nine hours of my day is, okay, let me sit down and get my work done with Demiplane. But um, I I'm very much one of those person, uh, th the kind of person. Apparently today is a day where I'm going to struggle with words. Get ready. Um, I, I'm one of those people who, uh, when uh, you know I'm working on something, if an idea pops into my head, I just have to go and do it. Otherwise, I'm going to forget. Right. And so, when I'm you know doing right. something, then I'm like, oh, that's a great idea for a tweet. Okay, go tweet that, and then come right yeah. back. Or oh, you know, I need to go, you know, deal with this thing in Discord very quickly. It's like, okay, let me just go do it, and then come back. And so. That is why, uh, you know, I will sometimes be like mid, uh, you know, project at work, you know, actively like doing some video editing and then like, oh, shoot, and go and like get distracted on a tangent for 30 minutes doing something else and then come back and be like, OK, anyways, now yeah. that th those intrusive thoughts are gone, I can return to what I was doing. Yeah, it's fun. Let's talk about Twitter, because I have yeah. to say that your presence on Twitter is it's very like there is an ADHD quality to it, but like your one-liners and your prompts for engagement are super good. Like I am always very impressed by how much you have honed that. And when I think about Twitter, I don't think about necessarily threads as much, which is where I get a lot of my traction. But I think about like um, people who can engage with a very mm. short thought and mm get across a very good idea, something fun, or something that makes people want to respond. And I feel like you've done that for a long time, although I haven't like trawled your entire sure, history. Sure. Do you want to talk about like 
how you've developed your Twitter and everything? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that, ooh, this is an interesting question. No one has ever asked me this Friday. I like this question. <laughs> um, let's see. Let's see. Where to begin? Um, you know, helpful context for, uh, you know, uh, who I am, I suppose, is that I went to college uh, and I got a degree in humanities, which is not like a common major. Um, but it, it was kind of uh, the way that we did it at my school was kind of like the Build-A-Bear of degrees where I uh, said, oh, yeah, I want to put, uh, you know, a minor in philosophy and a minor in English and an emphasis yeah. in music theory and put all those things into one degree and put right. a nice little bow on it. Um, right. And so that... Uh, I think in and of itself has kind of uh, shaped the way that I then like approach a lot of other things um, uh, in, in, in my professional life is I go, okay, well, how can I like take all of these kind of different things and put them all together in a way that uh, is exciting uh, and, and appeals to me, but also because I, uh, you know, like have a, like a, a literature background and I'm like, yeah, you, you want to talk about like uh, Middle English poetry? I, I am familiar with that. Uh, uh, but then also I can go like, okay, yeah, you want to talk about like Immanuel Kant's entire body of, of philosophical writing? I, I can talk about that. You, you know, uh, uh, one of the, the best classes that I ever took was just this high level overview of 20th century philosophy we're, we're, we're rabbit trailing here but i promise i'm gonna yeah. bring it back um uh it, 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 and because each session of that class was focused on a different philosopher from that entire century um or a movement in philosophy or you know like there were a couple that was like okay we're gonna talk about this person and that person because they're you know uh thoughts either complement one another well or have like a good dichotomy um i, I got very good at kind of just like okay cool thing 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 uh and, and having them all kind of separated and segmented but like in this neat succession uh, anyways m m the, the point that i'm kind of trying to draw out here um uh in in the uh rabbit trail brain version of whatever my brain does is um i i have kind of always operated in this um kind of scattered but collected uh like <clears throat> sense of mind uh and so um i i certainly uh try to keep the scattered thoughts somewhat collected uh on twitter um i this is not my my first twitter account um the first the first foray i ever had into uh the tabletop space in general uh in in terms of Twitter, was uh, with a roleplay account um, a couple years back. This was like 2018, 2019. Um, <clears throat> I knew that there was, you know, this this actual play scene that folks were doing things, um, but I wasn't like ready to do that yet. And so I would kind of say like honed my craft by um, roleplaying as an evil lich for like a year and a half. Uh -huh. And so I had this, you know, series of tweets about, oh, you know, my uh, skeleton assistant Jerry just fell into the gelatinous cube pit again. I got to go get him out. 
BRB. Okay. Um, and, and, and so I learned a lot of how Twitter worked. Right. Um, in, in, in the shoes of someone who is not me. And so yeah. I had uh, an opportunity to kind of explore and do these fun things. Um, and then after about a year and a half of that, I went, you know what? I, uh, I think I would rather actually interact with Twitter as myself now. But I was right. able to take a lot of those kind of learnings of, okay, what are the types of posts that are going to uh, like draw people in? What are the types of posts that people are going to engage with? Um, from this completely different experience, pretending to be an evil lich. And then I went, okay, so now I just take all that content, I remove the murder from it, and we're good. Yeah. I I love that so much. And um, I, you know, this is really full circle to like, especially what we do in the community, which is like, you know, role-playing to explore and like try out different ideas and things like that. And I think that... Um, for me, and especially let's, if we're going back to like how you approach like uh, most of your tasks and like how you view things, I feel like you take a little bit of uh, your humanities bent in which you um, take a philosophy and then you attempt to apply it to how you would like to do something. And I both love that. And then also I want to share... Um, for me, in how I was figuring out how I was going to start running horror games, it had a lot to do with my exploration of horror films and uh, gender and classism and racism within horror. And I took this class, um, and it was like a, a queer class, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was based around this book uh, called Monsters in America, Our Historical Obsession with the Hideous and the Haunting. And... Mm-hmm it basically just went into like America's like history with like racism and politics and class struggle and gender inequality and how these monsters that we create in film often represent those things that normative society is very afraid of. Um, And they create like a monster out of it. Uh, And you can see that looking back, especially into a lot of these films that are very dated and like problematic. Right. So yeah. Yeah. I, I took a lot of my learned lessons from taking that class and really studying horror film. And I tried to turn it and apply it to how I run like a Curse of Strahd campaign, which, as we know in the D&D scene, but perhaps our listeners don't, is fraught with incredible like racism and other problematic elements like ableism and, and such. And it's it's difficult to run a campaign like that and make people feel comfortable enough to play and be vulnerable when they might be a member of the one of the targeted groups. Yeah. Um, so how do you run a horror campaign without uh, basically just uh, victimizing one of your players? And especially mm-hmm. in my position, like as a professional GM, I don't know who's coming in or what their history is. I don't know them very well, at least at first, right? Um, right, right. And it's it can be pretty difficult. So I think, um, yeah, me discovering like that class and that book uh, really helped me as a professional GM. And I think that's honestly, I think the approach of studying and taking uh, a more educated, intentional uh, direction when you are starting projects or you're trying to be a creative is a way better way to approach things and to be a human, but maybe that's just my... Well, 
you know, I mean, I, I, I'm inclined to agree that if you can uh, base whatever creative efforts you're trying to do in a, an area of expertise that you have, that is going to automatically give you, uh, I don't want to say a leg up, but uh, like a, certainly a foundation of knowledge and confidence that is going to, I think, do well for you. Um, uh, a... Uh, friend slash acquaintance of mine um uh katie Asaurus is a tiktoker ttrpg personality um and uh she's got uh, her degree in like uh like masters in 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 like shakespearean literature and and theater um and, and is is uh I didn't know that. phenomenally knowledgeable when it comes to um not just like okay actual plays itself but actually like the structure and some of the like rhetorical things that happen in building out a narrative in uh whatever show that you're doing um and, and that really contributes to um her ability to like craft powerful narratives as a storyteller as a player um i recall there was a, a stream on twitch that she did recently where she like broke down the rhetorical movements in um the song trouble from the music man and uh -huh. went on like a 30 minute tangent about okay here's what happens and then he says this and then he says this and he's appealing to this sense of decency in this small little midwest town and then he says this and this is huge because he's separating the listener from the the thing that He's actually accusing the town of doing wrong, saying, but not you, right? And got into this whole, whole um, uh, kind of uh, very detailed breakdown of this one song and how it is such an effective uh, use of like persuasive speech. And then I think, okay, wait a minute, Katie, if you're doing this for a song from The Music Man, right? Like, how are you doing this to have conversations about the things that you do on a daily basis because you know she's got a huge tiktok following talking about yeah. uh like mental health and and adhd and and things like this and so i'm just really uh Im impressed at the way that she can um bring that depth of knowledge to bear um and because she has that depth of knowledge she's very very uh like persuasive as a person uh, because she knows all this stuff and it just right. kind of oozes from everything that she does. So long-winded example, but I think having um, a, 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 some kind of formal background, be that uh, a degree or just a significant amount of experience with a subject, is honestly such a great way to... Um, really build a foundation for yourself and uh, of this brand um it it occurs to me friday we were talking about the D, &D books on my shelf behind uh -huh. me a moment uh -huh. ago um i want to say something like half of the wizards design team uh maybe half is a little bit of, a, of an overstatement but i recall um there is like a, a shockingly high percentage of um, folks who do game design in the tabletop space who have degrees, oftentimes master's degrees in theology, because it's uh -huh. uh, uh, taking 
these methods of thought and these strategies and trying to communicate very technical things, oftentimes, whether you agree with them or not, very technical things in a succinct and meaningful way that is part of what makes them good game designers, perhaps, is because they have this background in tackling very large subjects, breaking it down into all the necessary components and saying, okay, we can't miss that. We can't miss that. We can't miss that. We have to remember this. But how do they all interact and and, and, uh, balance and play with one another in in game? And so, you know, I think think, um, there's something to be said uh, there for even having, you know, a background that you wouldn't immediately think like, oh, this is... Uh, going to be relevant to whatever it is you're doing uh, when suddenly you get into it and you go, oh, wow, I could use so much of this experience that I have Absolutely. in order to speak to a subject knowledgeably and make uh, uh, some kind of uh, name as, you know, the person who talks about D&D and tabletop gaming from the perspective of philosophy or the perspective of horror. It's yeah. Absolutely. And um, that's mastery. That's mastery of a subject and like really in-depth understanding like what it is that you're trying to explain. And that really comes from the experience in like the quote unquote 10,000 hours uh, that you need to really truly understand something and be able to break it down at every stage and like understand why something works because there's like the action of doing it and then there's like the innate understanding and uh troubleshooting and experimentation of why does this work why does this function this way and you mentioned katie well like one of the biggest influences on my professional career has been uh jasmine bular like that bronze girl who i had the immense privilege of working with for a while earlier this year Mm -hmm. and the way that she thinks it was just really a pleasure to interact with her figuring out problems and addressing how do we present this or why do I think this or why should I make the show this way? And the way that she breaks everything down is really just immensely humbling to have interacted with someone just that fucking smart. She is so smart and she has so much life experience that, um, in addition to really wanting everything that she puts out there to have her personal touch and the amount of love that she wants on it. It's honestly like, it's very, it's, it was very much, I think uh, in a lot of ways uh, inspiring for me to Mm -hmm. start to work more uh, with attention to detail and like, figuring out what exactly do I want to do and what's the holistic vision of it? Because that is in large part how she approaches things. And she goes off experience-based intuition and why does this work? And then she'll think about it very analytically. Like, okay, why does this work and why am I making this decision? She does that from everything from like casting to creative decisions to like her envisioning of, you know, for instance, um, the uh, coffin run. Um, which was the Dimension 20 show. And she had a huge creative part in that, um, which was, you know, created. um, I I don't know how much I can talk about this. (laughs) I I wasn't wasn't personally involved, but... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, I've I've talked to her about that. I don't know how much of that is privilege information. You know, probably probably worth it to uh, steer clear of any and all uh, potential NDAs. Uh, (laughs) So we can can suffice to say, um, 
I, I think people who um, can successfully make a living doing content creation either do so, uh, and, and I hate to say this because they're incredibly lucky and they have found something that, that, that has struck gold and they've been able to take it and capture it and really um, uh, using that, that, that great stroke of luck um, build this brand that is very successful. Or yeah. the alternative is they are very, very smart, very in, in terms of like business, especially like, like they know what they're doing. They've got experience from some kind of sales or marketing or something where they figured out just the perfect way to appeal to people and, and make their brand be so like welcoming and attractive that folks are just drawn to it. Um, you know, uh, I recall a very, very early conversation that I had with my uh, partner as we were like just first starting dating. And I forget even the context in which it, it, it came up in. Um, but um, I recall in this conversation, um, we were talking about, you know, content creators who were doing something very well. Um, and, and, uh, I think maybe we had seen like a, a clip on TikTok or something somewhere. Um, and, and we were talking about like the ways in which uh, creators market themselves. And we like both somehow like separately came to the conclusion that Amaranth is probably the most business savvy content creator oh, right is. now because yeah. the way that she markets herself, the way that she has got um, the kind of sex work only fan side of the industry working to help her Twitch side of the industry. Um, it is impressive. And like, if you've ever like sat and joined in on her streams, it's literally just her hanging out. And yeah. sometimes it's her like hanging out, like watching a movie while people are just there bopping right. along to whatever music is in the background. But you yeah. wouldn't know it because she's so cleverly crafted this whole thing. That's like, Hey, just come and work with me and work with me is she's just chilling there answering messages. And she's yeah. got thousands of people in chat donating subs and bits and trying to, you know, um, uh, win her attention because the brand is right. That she's kind of one of those, um, uh, people that, that folks are just going to try to like get her attention from. And I, I just, I just incredibly uh, impressive, the business savvy that she has, yeah. uh, to establish this brand and is, you know, uh, one of the, the, the most influential, OnlyFans creators, one of the most influential uh, Twitch streamers, and uh, it shows because uh, of, of how uh, just well that she has put together this this ecosystem for her brand. Yeah, I I know about her in the business side a little bit more. I think because I'm one of uh, I subscribe and I'm like uh, part of the mastermind uh, mm -hmm. group for Devin Nash. Um, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with him, but basically, and for our listeners who don't know who he is, basically, he was a uh, League of Legends player, then he ran an esports team, and then, uh, you know, Twitch streamer and everything, and then he runs a YouTube channel now that talks about industry news and Twitch, and kind of the space in general in the agency world. He now runs an agency called Novo, and he represents uh, just about all ty different types of content creators, and he 
creates branding messages by marrying um, a brand with the right creator that's going to create a um, an ad campaign that actually makes sense for both parties and everybody's happy with. So that's what he does now. Um, and he used to or still does, I believe, um, personally represent Amaranth and then yeah. also Pokimane um, in some capacity. So I think that uh, a lot of the... And, you know, Twitch drama is Twitch drama, like it's manufactured, yeah. of course. So, um, and that's just, you know, uh, all, uh, all press is good press. So that's like kind of the rule over there. Um, and the Twitch hat definitely has its fair share of problems, but it is very fascinating to uh, have access to uh, Devin and have him like one time he roasted my uh publishing pitch for my book that's coming out <laughs> and that was like we greatly improved it yeah, and yeah. you know it you know what i mean like having any sort of conversation with someone who is super business savvy and can actually tell you why things are the way that they are um is a valuable person to attempt to learn from and yeah. people who are either content creators or uh, people that are starting out in the industry and they're just starting as a social media manager or something like that. It is imperative that you spend time picking mm -hmm. your mentors and attempting to, even if you don't have a direct relationship with them, you need to like pick two or three people, in my mm -hmm. opinion, and start to follow them and like listen to what they have to say and sort of get influenced by them. Because if that's the path you want to take, then you need to actually invest in a direction and investing yeah. in a direction is either building a relationship with a mentor that's gonna you know you're gonna have a uh, positive um reciprocation uh mm -hmm. between you and them not a parasocial relationship but like a positive per uh reciprocation um yeah. and actually just you know start moving in that direction i think a lot of people when they get started no matter what it is they get stuck on uh, information overload and then they just analysis paralysis and they don't do anything but the best thing you can do because we're humans and humans respond best to working with other humans is like pick two or three people that you want to actually like sort of emulate and model like your behavior and then when they start to do stuff that you don't necessarily agree with or um you you try something and it doesn't work for you but it works for them then that's just it doesn't work for you and that's okay because you're a different person so that's why you pick two or three because like you got to figure it out along the way yeah. You know, I think one of the uh, most helpful things uh, that that I have ever done in, in my life, um, and this was very early on, this was while I was still in college, um, we had a, a career counselor um, who's actually the mother of a friend of mine. Uh, oh, okay. So that, that, that was funny and also convenient because, you know, I would show up and then I'd be like, oh, hey, you know, how's... Josh, her son, also my friend doing, right. and then we would talk about, you know, because he and I like played in a band together for a while. Anyways, this is very, very not important to the story. Um, uh, so uh, she um, introduced me to the idea of putting like um, a, <clears throat> what's the best way to put this here? Almost like a mission statement. Right. Or, or a, a statement that captures kind of your identity and your approach to um, your career, how you're going to be uh, kind of a, a contribution to the team at the top of your resume. And so we spent, um, I would say, probably like three weeks kind of going back and forth, 
emailing, meeting in person, meeting up for coffee to try and fine tune this um, statement about me, right? Uh, what is it that I uh, am uniquely talented with? What's unique about my approach to uh, work, to to getting things done? Um, and and what is the best way to convey that? And so eventually, um, uh, let's see if I remember this off the top of my head here, we settled on uh, uh, Josh is a, uh, uh, yeah, let me just pull it up just, just to, just to have mm-hmm. it so that I don't, I don't read it wrong. Um, right. Uh, because this is important, uh, in terms of my own branding. Let's take a look. Uh, here we are. So, uh, what we eventually settled on, uh, is thoughtful leader and compassionate listener who communicates with confidence and class. Um, and that has kind of molded the way that I think about how I interact with pretty much anything, right? Since like the day we got that, I was like, yeah, okay, okay, thoughtful leader, right? A big part of that was, you know, um, I I had years of volunteer uh, leadership experience at that point already. Um, And so I was thinking, you know, okay, in the ways that like I interact with other people and work with other people, I'm very much the kind of person who will listen first, take some time, get some input, and then kind of, uh, from there, make an informed decision. Um, and then uh, I, for a very brief period of time, attended a business school where like I was always like wearing suits and like had this kind of like kind of uh, uh, business professional um, uh, sort of vibe uh, that um, I, I think to this day kind of persists in just sometimes uh, I, I would even say just like how I think about myself is you know what, like, I need to operate in uh, such a way that there is going to be no shadow of a doubt, like what I'm about, what my values are. Um, and, and I, it feels like icky to say I need to be brand safe, but like, I need to be brand safe for my own brand, because I want brands to work with me. And so um, I, I have kind of over over time, taken that as a, a workplace approach and, and modeled it and adapted it somewhat to um, the tabletop space. Um, but based on, you know, the things that I bring to the table, uh, I, I recall a very long conversation about communication skills and why did we want to focus on communication skills as, uh, you know, part of what uh, we were putting on this resume. Uh, and, and for me, it, it ultimately like came down to Right. I think one of the best things that I can bring to any team is the ability to hear, okay, this is what you're actually concerned about. Let's confirm that this is what you're actually concerned about. Okay, and then here's a solution that actually meets those needs. Yes, let's confirm that that's going to do what we think it's going to do. Okay, here's the solution. Right, and, and kind of taking the time to, okay, listen, confirm understanding. Okay. Let's suggest something, let's get feedback, and then let's present the idea. Um, uh, it is an approach that I have kind of always taken to and also is like how I interact in public spaces is, you know, like if there's discourse happening on the internet, as is often the case, right? <laughs> I, on TTRPG I, Twitter, what? <laughs> about about twice a day. Um, you can tell the time by it normally, actually. Uh <laughs> I I 
always, right, the first thing before anything happens, right? I am never the first person to chime in on discourse. I'm oftentimes not even the 20th person to chime in on discourse because I'm taking a moment to go, okay, what's actually at stake here, right? People are talking about these things. Is this a <clears throat> personal gripe that has grown too large? Is this a truly bad actor that we need to be concerned about? Or is this, uh, you know, some form of personal or professional disagreement um, that is going to have some consequences, uh, you know, in, in the space at large, trying to um, categorize, okay, what's actually the nature of um, the, the, the source of the issue here? Is, is it hurt feelings? Is it uh, someone who has uh, burned a bridge? Is it some, you know, failure in professionalism? Is it something like truly harmful and insidious? Uh, and then, okay. So this is what the source of the issue is. Let's take a moment, right? Let's see, okay, how are people talking about it? The people who are affected, what are they saying, right? Is this coming from a place of like personal hurt? Is this coming from a place of uh, wanting to, you know, retaliate and, and hurt someone or damage someone because um, they think they deserve it or they should be the one to, you know, strike this killing blow to someone? Um, or is it really like well-intentioned and Hey, like this person, um, has done this and I really hope that they, uh, can learn from their actions and, and, uh, do right by others in the future. Um, you know, what's, what's the intentionality there in terms of how people are engaging with it. And then after all of this, right after I've kind of consumed, uh, the different perspectives and figured out what's going on, that's when you'll see for me a okay, so here's what I'm seeing kind of statement. And it's oftentimes not focused about me at all, but hey, like I've noticed that there are trends in the tabletop space where this thing will happen and then this thing will happen. And just, you know, from, from a third person perspective, here's what I think we could take away from that in terms of like a learning experience or a red flag that maybe we had previously not been aware of that we should start to be aware of. Um, and sometimes I just keep my mouth shut because, you know, it's not my place to chime in. And that's also a really valuable skill to learn very early on oh, uh, yeah. in any in any professional space um, or any yeah. hobby space. Is, you know, like sometimes it's not your issue. Uh, and, and you know, uh, yeah, I, I try to avoid talking in those times uh, <laughs> upon pain of death because I, I just... Yeah. I have nothing of value to contribute here and I don't want to, uh, you know, try to analyze something and miss a key component because I'm not uh, fully in tune with whatever is happening behind the scenes in terms of maybe a cultural consideration or uh, some kind of personal relationship between those folks that I just don't know what's happening. I just, you know what? Uh, one of the best things you can learn in life is when to keep your mouth shut. Yeah. I, you know, honestly, um, so I was in the, you know, I try not to bring this up too much. <laughs> I was in the Marine Corps for 13 years, right? And I was like yeah. in like a kind of a senior position and like, you know, people listen to me when I talk. That's super hard to let go. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, That is super hard to let go. So um, for me to come into a brand new space in these last couple of years and uh, to actually have spent most of the time at least trying to listen first has been um, pretty difficult because I came from a, a, a career path where 
I either knew most of the answers or I could quickly learn most of the answers. And then I was the advisor and I was the person came to, to like, how should we solve this problem? And be like, okay, well, here's your solution. And then, you know what I mean? So I, for sure, I, I have struggled with that. And um, it is a super important thing to do because there's so much, there's so much out there really at the end of the day, like there's so much out there and especially when your team is and it's if it's a digital or remote team there's so much out there that you're not understanding the context to so having as much of your effort be to uh fully understand and empathize with people first is super important and i i think i ran into this issue most and really fully understood it when I came out and I found out how much gatekeeping there was in the queer community. Because mm. when I was starting to explore, a lot of queer people were the first people to tell me to stay cis. And mm. the first people to uh, tell me that I'm, you know, the way that I am. Or not to say certain certain things. Because I can't say that. You know what I mean? And Interesting. Yeah, it, well, because I had, like, presented as, like, super hyper-masculine. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know, like, you know what I mean? It Now, of course, you know, um, as you see in my background, but our listeners don't, the, you know, the, the moocha tapestry behind me with the the glowing lights, you know, obviously I'm a queer. But It's a nice touch. <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, I actually, I actually got this before I realized I was a queer. This was another sign that... <laughs> that I am totally a queer, but had no idea. I was like, you know, I would just really like this. You know what I mean? I yeah, saw it and yeah. I was just like, this is beautiful. Like, this really speaks to me. <laughs> you know, sometimes we know before we know, right? And it's just our subconscious <laughs> screaming at us like, hey, I have some really big news to tell you and I need you to pay attention to the signs I'm giving you right now. Yeah, exactly. Um... Yeah, I, you know, it, it, once I left the military, like, it was a pretty, it was a pretty quick process for me, because once I was removed from the boundaries that people kind of put me in, or I had fallen into for so long, then me acting like myself was, and, and without having as many expectations about the way that I should act, mm-hmm. um, was when I came out, of course, which is, you know, a totally different conversation, but right, with right, that right. being said... Um, yeah, let's talk about your work at Demiplane. Are you allowed to talk about that? Let's talk uh, yeah. about some of that. Yeah, uh, the only things that I can't talk about are things that have not been announced yet. So Okay, great. Um, you wouldn't know that I can't talk about them, so it's convenient. <laughs> fair, fair. fair. Um, let's talk about uh, Vampire Nexus. How familiar yeah. with that are you? Uh, reasonably familiar. So, right, uh, my role uh, as the the community person and as our uh, video streaming podcast person, uh, you know, I, I am not a, a computer programmer. Um, I, I took some some programming classes in college. Uh, I am just dangerous enough when it comes to understanding those things to be like, I know it's possible to do this, but I could never do it myself. Um, uh, but. Uh, I, I'm pretty familiar with the content of of the matter. Um, uh, I, I can tell you that you know, as of the time of this recording, uh, you know, we got the the newly updated uh, errata for um, uh, two titles that we've been waiting on for a little while, uh, and so we're excited to get the errata for um, 
Chicago by Night and Cults of the Blood Gods moving here. Nice. But uh, you know, not 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 to uh, date date this episode or anything, but uh, you know. We we had been uh, waiting for those errata files uh, for a little while, and finally have them. So coming nice. soon, um, nice. and I'm sure that by the time that this releases, you know, maybe that'll be meaningless because they'll already be out. But who knows? No, this is going out today. So <laughs> oh oh yeah. In that case, of of, of today, the time of recording, uh, it is uh, we, errata coming soon. Anyways, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um no, actually, what had happened was uh. Um, I was supposed to do this, like, uh, I had like a couple of weeks ago podcast mm. recording for this week, but mm. we just rescheduled. So now I have three podcasts recording today and you're uh, the nice. first. So nice. you awesome. are going up first and then next week is also today. And then the following week is also today. Well, but anyway, I hope you've got tea because you're going to do a lot of talking. <laughs> well, I am a professional game master. So that is something that I regularly do. I do consume good, tea. Good. I do consume water. I consume like two of these big little cups a day. Um, good, good. And I, you know, it at first it was more difficult on my voice, but now it's fine. The only yeah. time that I really find that there's a lot of damage to my throat is when I do too much gravel. And then I just reduce the amount of gravel and mm. I just have to regulate that. But yeah, um, I'm super excited for Demi playing Vampire Nexus. Um, yep. because character creation automated. Oh my, oh my God, I need it. I need yeah. it as a professional GM because it's going to cut down on character creation, spending six hours for a first time player to like maybe one or two. And yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I, I think, uh, one of the cool things, right. About <clears throat> many of the games that we've chosen to support, not quite all of them, uh, but, but many of them are games that have uh, a lot of details, have a lot of things that you got to think about, um, and can be intimidating systems for first-time players, right? Mm -hmm. Our kind of pilot for this whole thing is Pathfinder 2nd Edition, mm -hmm. which is an incredibly crunchy system. There's a lot Complex. of numbers, features. Um, we're currently in the internal alpha uh, for that character uh, tools set up right now. Yeah. <clears throat> so last night while I was watching election results, I was also uh, very actively like, okay, let me click through and make sure that this doesn't have any bugs in this path. Okay, cool. Let me click through and make sure there's no bugs in this path. Okay. And, you know, you've got to make 20, 15 to 20 different like decisions in terms of multiple options and what feet do I want and what you know, uh, where do I want to boost my skills here? And what's the extra language and all that kind of things. Um, even it's just part of creating a first level character. It, it's a very um, uh, active process because there's so many different things that you get to choose from. It's great. It's very granular. If you want a crunchy tabletop game experience, Pathfinder is great for that. Um, but similarly, right, Vampire. Uh, at really all of the World of Darkness games can be kind of intimidating to get into. Um, and, uh, you know, I have always found that the way that uh, stuff for character creation is laid out in the book, while it makes sense if you're like thinking about it in terms of like, okay, first they need to know this, then they need to know this, then they need to know this, is laid out and structured in such a way that it's kind of difficult to actually sit down and make a character because you're okay all right what do i need okay let me flip 40 pages back okay i can choose between this or flip another 10 pages that 
one of the yeah. two of those things. And so you're flipping pages back right. and forth and back and forth. Okay, what's the next step? Okay, now I got to flip 60 pages back. Right. Okay. And so, uh, you know, I, I think having all of that information displayed in a format where you can go, okay, what's this option? Click, read. Okay, well, what's my alternative? Click, read. Mm, I like the first one better. Click, select. And yeah. you're done, right? You, yeah, you can exactly. save a lot of time in terms of the flipping back and forth and get a lot of the context needed for, okay, what am I actually trying to make this decision about um, in a much uh, more streamlined, user-friendly way? And particularly for the world of darkness, there has never been... Uh, a, a very good digital character creation tool. There's never been anything like that. Um, and so having the chance to really put out like uh, this high quality, very streamlined, very user-friendly um, uh, set of character tools is something we're so excited about um, yeah. because it's a great game. You know, I, I have played several sessions of vampire over the years, uh, mostly one shots. I, at some point, hope to, you know, get in on onto a, a longer game, but I just haven't mm -hmm. had the time for it yet. Yeah. Uh, but uh, each time I play, I go, "Wow, like this is a fun experience." If you've got the right table dynamic, it is like right. truly a a uh, powerful story that you can tell, um, like literally and figuratively. Um, and and I just, it is a travesty that that it is such a hard game for newcomers to wrap their heads around and we're really hoping that we can by presenting information in a format that's very digestible uh makes sense as you're building your character first you need this then you need this then you need this mm -hmm. here's your options click 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 you've got a character sheet that's going to make it so much easier for new folks to get involved and that's really like one of the big things about like digital tool sets as a whole if we like take half step back and talk about like kind of our philosophy as a business. Um, we're all about making it easier for people to have these great gameplay experiences with less time flipping through rule books, less time, you know, talking at the table. Okay. So what is it that we're actually trying to figure out here? What's the rule here? Um, so that way, if you're like, okay, something like we need a rule here, what's the ruling? You can just go search, or, oh, I know what book that's in. Click, find, click, click. There it is. Uh, and then you can just copy and paste and share that so that everyone's mm -hmm. on the same page and can see it. Um, yeah. If you're like a GM trying to run a session, you're like, hey, I hadn't quite fully prepped for this part of the game. Uh, I need a quick combat encounter. You can go, okay, I'm looking for this type of creature in this kind of environment, uh, this difficulty level. Boom, here's five options. I like that one the best awesome mm -hmm. or hey you know like i'm not quite sure what uh this item does let me go read up on it or i'm not quite sure what you know uh this hazard in in pathfinder is or what this uh discipline in vampire is um and so we're trying to make it so that all that information is readily available at your fingertips so that you don't have to stop and go and get the book off the bookshelf and flip and say, okay, I think it's here. No, it's not there. It's not there. Is there an index in this thing? No, okay, I need to go and Google what the, the ruling is on this thing. You can just go, uh, oh, I need to know about jump mechanics. Enter, pop it up, 
jump mechanics. Great. Here we go. This is how it works. And you can get right back into gameplay. Um, and and so, uh, that's kind of one of like the big things we talk about is, is we want you to spend as much time playing games at the table as possible Mm -hmm. and as little time going, okay, what's the ruling for that? Oh, right. What are my abilities? Uh, Oh, I forgot what this spell does. Okay. Click on it. Here's the wording go. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, you need to make that. We'll just click it. We'll roll the dice for you. Make life easy. Yeah, absolutely. And just to speak on vampire, because I do run vampire games. It's like, it's so much a different system than D and D in that Mm -hmm. it is basically if your D and D table was almost completely rule of cool. Um, (laughs) and that, uh, you will just roll dice once in a while. Uh, if something completely like messed up happens or like there's a chance of frenzy or something like that, maybe, or you're like fighting another vampire or werewolf or something, then you roll dice. But like, for the most part, like, it's like, what are you trying to do? Like, I always ask, find myself asking like, what's your intent? What would you like to do? Mm And then I figure out, okay, what ability are you using? And then I look at the ability for a second, and then I think for five to ten seconds, and I try to figure out a way to make that work. Yeah. And that's totally different than my mindset um, running games in D&D, which I don't know if that says that just about me or the way that I run D&D games, but the rule of cool is just like basically the the bare minimum of how vampire games are run. Yeah. And it's just such a different mindset. So when you put players that vibe well together at a table like that, it really creates a lot more possibilities. I had a player the other night, I just ran a game last night, who is like playing like an intern vampire, which is mm. the, the types of stereo stereotypes or like tropes that people play with their vampires is super funny. But yeah. I have Shannon the intern in my in my Tuesday night game. And Shannon the intern, post uh solving the ghost mystery at the lighthouse, created a PowerPoint for developing a team building exercise for the coterie and like presented nice. that in character and like we actually pulled up the powerpoint and we shared screen on it and like that's a sort of like environment that vampire is um mm-hmm. because it, mm-hmm. it's also really connected to the real world as well so it's easier for players to interact with that and there's less of a barrier to really create yeah. something uh for that game and i find that players do super invest in their vampires yeah. um rather than their D&D characters a lot of the time, as much as I might try to get them to. Yeah. Well, uh, and I, I think <clears throat> you're absolutely right to to point out the connection to the real world because it is just like <clears throat> a very slight step away from reality and <clears throat> you're playing vampire, right? Yeah. Um, the fancy here in my game is that it's in 2018 before it, before the Panini. And that, that's as far as they got to go with their imagining um but yeah there you go um but but i do think you're right um in in terms of the different approach in terms of running a game because i i think the thing that you got to remember about vampire in particular really all of the world of darkness games is like this is a world where some dark shit happens right it's messed up There, there there is a lot of grittiness a lot of like death and and um injustice in the world and particularly in Vampire, you are part of, I don't want to say a social class necessarily, but like a apex predator class that is in many cases the ones actively like perpetrating that injustice. And so you have these themes of like morality and how do you shape the world 
um, that are much more prominent than in D&D. You're normally, you know, hey, some low-level adventurers at first. Uh, the world is shaped around you, and oftentimes in our fantasy environments, it's a little bit better than than the real world might be. Right. Whereas in the world of darkness, it is truly like, I don't want to say like a, a worse version of the world, because that feels hard to imagine, but it is a, a version of the world where um, injustice is very much at the forefront of what you're playing with and, and focusing on. And yeah. also you are playing characters who have so much um, ability and power to change things uh, at the drop of a hat because like the way things work in V5 is if you use one of your, uh, you know, uh, abilities on, on just a normal human, it just works, right? Like you don't have to roll for that. It just happens. Um, and so like you can literally shape like the trajectory of this city or history in the entire world by, you know what, I'm going to choose to uh, dominate this person or I'm going to, you know, use this ability and and um, forever change this person's life, potentially for the better or for the worse. Yeah. And so with that increased amount of agency, I think also comes the understanding like, yeah, you know what, like these are people who could absolutely like on a bad day, like burn a city to the ground if they so yeah. chose. And so um, taking that into consideration as you're running a game is is huge. You know what I just figured out? I know why B. Dave loves Vampire now and Level 20 Adventures, because the question yeah. is not, can I do something? It's, should I do something? Right. It's all about agency yeah. and, and, okay, I have this ability to do it. I can change the world. It's me. What do I do with that power? Mm-hmm. It's phenomenally interesting. And and you learn a lot about people too, right? Uh, yeah. when, when you give them that, that opportunity, that, that chance to be the one making this, the decisions, like that's so fascinating. Yeah. And I, and I think especially because um, things tend to work themselves out as far as like mm. play groups who you're going to play with and everything like that. Um, people find out pretty quick if like, you're just not a good team player. Like if you're right. not good at the table and uh for for me like whenever i'm in that situation it's like a question of should i do something or someone at the table is making that decision should i do something and if you do something that's inherently like selfish uh for yourself as a player over the rest of the players then like it really does ruin the mood and it becomes very apparent when that's the table culture at your table and people just don't want to play with you anymore if you're like putting yourself and your fun over the rest of the table. Well, it's absolutely true. You know, um, uh, I there was a period uh, very early on when I was in, in getting into tabletop gaming where uh, it, my main kind of play experience was at my friendly local game store. Uh, and so I certainly had a number of experiences where, you know, you'd have a player come in and just not mesh well with the group or, you know, they were more focused on this thing or that thing. Um, and in, in some cases, right, I was able to kind of mold those players into better players. And in some cases, those players never came back to the game. Uh, and and uh, in a couple of cases, uh, we had a, a DM say, hey, you're not allowed to be in this game unless you change this, this and this. Right. Go figure yourself out. Uh, and, and if you want to be here to play this game, you need to make that a priority. And if you're not going to be here to participate in this group activity, 
you need to leave. Um, yeah. And uh, there's kind of this this social contract uh, to borrow from a, a more of a philosophical term in terms of when you sit down to play a game that I think um, uh, all of the great players kind of uh, realize and and are all in on the social contract of, hey, you know what? If any of us is going to have fun, we all need to be having fun. We all need to be kind of contributing to this shared enjoyment. And when everyone at your table is all kind of pulling the same direction to say, yeah, we're all trying to make this a fun collaborative experience. That is when the most magical moments in game happen. Yeah. Um, and, and the moment someone uh, tries to break that social contract and say, okay, no, it's about me, right? Just the table falls apart and, and, and yeah. everyone stops having fun. And so uh, finding that, that group that really like meshes well on, on that level and kind of having that same approach is, uh, can be, can take some time, can be tricky, but once you find that group, it's, it's so good. Uh, you know, I, I oftentimes, right, when running like charity games or one shots or something like that, folks will be like, oh, like, you know, do you want me to like uh, do do physical dice or like roll dice in whatever our, our, our digital tool, virtual tabletop, whatever it is that we're using is. Uh, and I'm always like, look, I'm trusting you to roll dice and be honest about them, because if you're lying to me about what your dice say, you have not bought into the concept of playing a game yet. <laughs> and I need yeah. you to first like. Part of the fun is when things go wrong and you have to figure it out on the fly. If you're not here for that experience, you're at the wrong table. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I'm always very, very upfront about that. Whenever someone's like, hey, like, you know, do you want me to like roll dice in a digital format in a way that you can see them so that I don't lie about them? I'm like, no, roll the dice. If you're going to lie to me about, about what you get, we have a completely different problem. Uh, than honesty and and me trusting you and that's you're not here for the same experience that i'm here for right yeah absolutely um okay um yeah that being said you did have some and this is a show where i'm supposed to talk to you and you're supposed to talk more but you mentioned you had some questions for me yeah <laughs> so yeah, yeah. What, what are these let's let's do that let's do these questions so so i want to take two seconds right if you're listening to this podcast um, and do not follow Friday on Twitter. One, you've made a critical mistake with your life. You should go, if you don't have a Twitter account, you should create one so that you can follow Friday on Twitter. Uh, so because, because very consistently, uh, she is putting out these very thoughtful threads about, okay, here's how you market yourself as uh, a professional DM or GM. Here's some things that I've learned. Boom, 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 boom. Great insights. Or uh, you want to be a better game master? Here's some things that I've learned. And you're sharing very practical advice, very um, like evidence-driven stuff saying, okay, you do this, you do this. Stuff that's coming clearly from experience that as someone who you know runs the occasional you know charity one shot uh, has done I think maybe three or four professional games uh, total because I just don't have the bandwidth to do much more than that because I'm being pulled in other directions. That's fine. Um, I learn a lot about marketing myself as a content creator. I learn a lot about 
how do I approach running a game? How do I set expectations clearly about said game? And then how do I kind of take those two things and you know, run a, a very smooth game and make sure that people are getting what they want out of it and also market myself in a way to then appeal to a new, perhaps broader audience um, from a lot of these threads. I think they're phenomenal. And so what I'm most excited about in our conversation here Friday is to talk a little bit of shop, right? Like, tell me what initially got you from, okay, I'm you know going to start running these games to I want to share my experiences and help new people get into this uh, kind of same line of work because, and I'll tell you why this is appealing to me so that you have a moment while you can think about the answer. I'm going to tell you why the context here. I think mentorship is something that is severely lacking in the tabletop industry, right? People who say, what do you want to accomplish? Here's how you get there. Here are the tools and tips and tricks that are going to get you all the way there. Um, and so recently I signed up for a mentorship program so that I can help people who are interested in streaming or help people who are interested in community management and things like that, kind of learn some of the basic skills and, and things that they need in order to um, advance in their professional uh, you know, career path that way, whether it's a hobby thing or, or a work thing for them. Um, and I've had several conversations recently uh, with folks who have been in the industry, who have I've been doing it for a while, uh, and we're talking about you know some of the inroads that we started with are not as viable of a career path to go from hobbyist to professional anymore. So how are we going to get new people with new ideas and enthusiasm and and the skills needed to be successful in the tabletop industry into the industry? And I think what you're doing uh, with these threads is a really helpful inroad to say, hey, if you want to get into tabletop gaming and want to make some cash on the side or maybe make this your full-time gig, running games is a great way to do it. And of course, you've now made the transition to like doing some other projects, right? Uh, whether that's writing a game or publishing a game or things like that, you're, you're starting to uh, branch out in terms of what you're doing. Um, and so I'm curious what it was that sparked that thought for you to be like, okay, I need to like share the stuff that I'm learning. Uh, like what, what, what was the inspiration for that? Um, before we go on with that minor plug, if you do become a patron of me, since all these podcasts are free on my Patreon, if you do become a patron, I do put all my Twitter threads like in a channel for you. So you have all That's that. That's convenient. That's nice. That's super convenient. I know it's great. It, they're also, I usually publish some of them in my newsletter so you can sign up for that as well you can have all your information in one place and then eventually you know it of course i also advertise my products or whatever in my newsletter but it's my newsletter so you can fuck off if you got a problem with that so <laughs> or you could just unsubscribe i don't know like <laughs> you do you i guess it, yeah, if yeah, you're yeah. signing up for a newsletter and don't know what you're in for i mean yeah exactly um yeah, so uh, briefly going back to like what my interests are just as a human and like what I get fulfillment out of, um, I'm not a magnanimous person. I just, I enjoy mentorship and teaching. Um, and I think I've always been that way, um, at least when I became competent at things. Um, when I was a junior later in the Marine Corps, I found myself really interested in that. 
Uh, I became a water survival instructor, which is like rescue swimming and stuff like that. And then um, a martial arts instructor and, um, you know, and then uh, moving on to like both being like a supervisor. And then when I changed my job to an infantryman, I became a squad leader and all this different stuff. And then I became a recruiter for a while for the Marine Corps. And then like I mentored a lot of high school students, like because you have to prepare to go into the Marine Corps or you just don't do well at all. Of course, Um, you get broken. Um, So... I think that that for me is a very it's a personally fulfilling thing that I do as a selfish act because I like to um, help people. I only have so much bandwidth for it. So at this point, I had transitioned. And when I started to crop up on Twitter, it was really uh, the meeting of two different truths for me. The first was I was already active in the GM help chat and start playing games. And I was getting pinged so much and recently i've just like i can't do it anymore because like there are so many people joining the server now um who were pinging me and i was just like stop it stop it right now (laughs) i i have that adhd brain where i'm just like you know and i have to have discord open for my business so i put don't ping in my server name because not because i don't want to help people but because genuinely you cannot ping me 15 times a day and have me get anything done um so it was partially that when I was first starting out. And then also, I just have always been that person. I've been that bitch, basically, that if I learn something that I think is valuable for other people, I am willing to turn around and try and teach it if I gain some mastery in it. Um, and I've taught martial arts for years. So, I mean, like, it's it's really just a part of who I am as an individual. Um, and for me, the really, the the push for me on Twitter was I do have to grow a brand at some point being a content creator and like a game designer writer and all this other stuff that I'm doing. And I'm a showrunner. So for me, Twitter was just the right platform because I can take what I know and try and distill it into perhaps the simplest way that I can put it and then have it reach a white audience potentially. And that has been the platform I picked for that reason. Um, regardless of current direction or things that are currently happening with Twitter. Right. um, It is the right platform for me and my brand. So um, I think that moving forward, obviously I'm going to invest a lot into my newsletter um, and that'll continue to be a thing. So long as I can stomach the workload along with every, every other thing that I'm doing. And I want it to be a source of useful information rather than something you sign up for. And then like, you don't even read because why would I, work to send stuff out if people aren't going to read it um i want to make it as useful as possible so for me the biggest thing and um maybe i've said the biggest thing like 90 times already but one of the things that i really want is for more people to make a living wage in tabletop that's my dream Like, Mm. that's what I personally want. Not because I'm, like, a selfish person, but because I want a living wage in tabletop, too. So so I don't want the same... I don't want to have the same conversation that all of these people who started in the 2000s have had with me, or even the 210s, or even now, where they're like, I have a full-time job, and I moonlight as a professional game designer because no one can pay me what I'm worth. And that is atrocious to me. Mm-hmm. And that has been my whole philosophy for me starting the vineyard is when I was having this conversation with 
with Jasmine and I'm like, I don't know where I can get an inroad to being a writer because A, it's oversaturated with, with amateurs. And then even if I get in somewhere, I'm getting paid five to 10 cents a word. Right. So she said to me, well, you're great at project management. Why don't you just start your own? And I was like, okay. And then I just started sending emails and then people kept saying yes. And then I'm now I'm stuck with this monstrously, potentially very successful project that'll launch in 2023 on Kickstarter. But um, it really just started from my desire. Like, I would like to pay people 25 cents a word. I would like to pay people royalties from the product. I don't want to make three or four times as much as everyone else. I want to make the same amount for the work that I'm doing. And um, that's really it. Like, when the Kickstarter does well, and I say does because i manifest the things that i want in my life okay and i yeah. work towards that that's the type of person that i am mm -hmm. so as woo woo girl as you want to get like the motivational video watcher that i am um or, or used to be i should say uh when the kickstarter does well and we overfund royalties go back to the contributors right. and then in addition to that whatever additional that I have after I paid off my debt and then I am financially secure, then it's moving towards creating a game studio so I can continue work like that. Because there's no reason that I, you know, Friday Strout, is paying people two or three times more than AAA studios out of mm -hmm. my fucking garage. You know what I'm saying? That's atrocious to me. That's silly. Yeah. So I don't understand what's wrong with this industry to where it's gotten to this point. And where people have just accepted the big lie that people can't afford writers and artists to be paid a living wage. That's bullshit. Because yeah. we have million dollar Kickstarters. Where's the money going? Like, where's it going? Why yeah. don't people charge $10 more for their book? Why don't yeah. they? They should. So that people can get paid a living wage. You know what I mean? So, sorry to say, if you're listening to this, like, the vineyard is going to cost $60 or $70. Because I pay people 25 cents a word and like I yeah. pay artists what they're due. So I don't know. That's my rant about that. No, that, that's super fair. Um, you know, <clears throat> one of the uh, benefits of being a community manager in the tabletop space is I have uh, gotten to get to know a lot of other community managers at a lot of the publishers. Um, and, you know, one of the common conversations that we have especially recently, uh, Paizo has recently upped their uh, prices, uh, mm -hmm. which uh, makes sense, honestly, because I think they had previously been uh, kind of selling them for, for a little bit of a loss, um, uh, which probably speaks to part of the, uh, you know, uh, reasoning why perhaps, uh, and, and I, I can't necessarily say this about Paizo because I understand they actually pay fairly well uh, in, in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, and I also have never written for Paizo, so I can't actually tell you what their freelancer rates are. Um, just right. disclaimer. Uh, but, uh, you know, I understand that Paizo tends to be um, uh, in, in the top half of, of, of uh, rates, and they should be because they're, you know, one of the larger companies. But back to my point, uh, I have had a chance to talk with a bunch of community managers, and one of the most common, like, you know, in our little Discord venting channel, right? It, it, one of the most common things is so and so said that they, uh, you know, thought that we charged too much for our PDF of the full book, right? And I was like, okay, that's the book, right? 
but it, it's so common, right? It, it's so common. We see this on uh, Demi Plane sometimes where people will say, oh, well, I don't want to, you know, pay for the whole book again, right? Like, why can't you give it to me for free? And the reason we can't give it to you for free is because people have put their, you know, hours and hours and hours of their livelihood into this product. This book is, is a, a phenomenal thing. And if we were to, you know, give it away for free or sell it for $5 a pop, right? No one would ever be able to pay any of their bills. And right. so um, I, I think that is as a whole kind of from the whole industry perspective, that is something that um, we are certainly trying to, I think, tackle um, within the space because there, there are certainly publishers who are going to sell things for cheap uh, in, in an effort to build a market for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is a, perhaps a legitimate strategy. I think a lot of folks who publish things like on the DMs Guild or Drive Through RPG or Itch, uh, you know, they're willing to sell <clears throat> a, a game for $5 or an adventure for, you know, $10 and not really make back what they put into it. Um, in the hopes that, you know, they're going to build up an audience for themselves. And then, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> I, I recall a conversation I had with um, uh, a couple of DMs Guild authors, um, I guess a couple of years back now, um, where we were talking about <clears throat> kind of the strategy for success. If you were going to publish on the DMs Guild was you're not going to make any money back on the first couple of titles you publish for... <clears throat> less than you probably should but as you build an audience they're going to um <clears throat> excuse me i've got some stuff in my throat today uh they're going to go back and um as you release new products and your audience grows there's going to be people that go back and check out your old products in addition to the new ones you're coming out. And so then when someone discovers you for the first time, it's not, okay, you get $2 off of, you know, a $4 project. It's you're actually getting like $15 from that one person because they're going back and they're buying several of your projects. Right. And, and so, um, the, the key to sustainability, right. With the DMs guild model is you need to get to the point where you've got 10 to 15 things out there that are really high quality products that people are going to go and buy. Because then when someone says, oh, like Josh Simons, I want to go check out all of their work. They're going to go and drop $50 on all of those things. And because you've got so many of those projects, you're suddenly going to start to make back that money um, after several years of not making any money. Right. And, you know, I can understand... Um, I, I understand that business strategy is give away our stuff for pennies on the dollar so that there's an audience that gets interested in what we're doing. And then eventually we can build the name and start to charge more. Yeah. Um, and I can appreciate that approach, but I think the, the, the side effect of that is it has caused prices for high quality things that are coming out from publishers to be, uh, need to be lower in order to have this appearance of remaining competitive. And mm -hmm. so you're paying 20 to $30 for a uh, PDF that, you know, a publisher has put together of this big elaborate book, but they're also still making the big elaborate book that's going to sell right. for $50 or $40 or whatever. Um, and uh, those companies are not making a significant profit because they're trying to keep the prices low, because there's this mentality 
that since these are luxury products, it's a game after all, you right. shouldn't have to pay a lot of money for it um, or trying to keep it accessible by charging less for it. But in turn, you know, they're kind of hurting their bottom line as a company. When I, I obviously like, I don't think that's a good mentality to have. And it's something that I think we're all kind of trying to grapple with right now. Um, so seeing you know, recent price increases from Paizo is encouraging because maybe it means yeah. that that things are going the right direction. Uh, I think more and more publishers are saying, yeah, you know what, like we should charge a little bit more for this. And if we sell a few less copies, you know, oh well, right? Ultimately, we're, we're still guaranteeing that, uh, you know, we're paying people um, a little bit better. Um, royalties yeah. is certainly something that isn't happening so much in the tabletop space. Uh, it, it tends to be writing contracts. And then when you fulfill the contract, you know, that's all the, all the money you're going to get. Um, so I'm, I'm actually very intrigued, uh, to see how that goes for you and your projects, uh, in the future, because, uh, if you can do that, well, that's, that's, um, uh, has the potential to be, I think a, a, uh, significant shift, uh, in, in the industry, but, um, yeah. I, I want to change the industry. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, more power to you. More, more power to you. I, I think that um, because of our roots as the tabletop industry, kind of coming from this thing that a whole bunch of folks were kind of doing in their basements, were you know, trying to scrape together a living as a side hustle, um, you know, on top of whatever else that, that they were doing as their day job. Um, it has certainly made it harder for us to um, operate as if we had the same um, uh, financial buy-in as an industry that we actually do. Um, and, and so I think that work to shift that mentality and perhaps realize that there is more money in the space than folks realize. Um, you just have to, one, find the people who are willing to spend it, uh, and two, uh, have uh, the willingness to say you know what this is my worth and i'm not going to allow people to treat me as if i am not worth that um and three i think really go about it in in a, a responsible and professional way in which you are demonstrating i i, I there's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy component here where if you operate like you know what? We're a professional organization. We're going to do it this way. We're going to do it this way. We are worthy of the respect and cost that we put on this product. People go, oh yeah, okay. But you have to actually make yeah. that claim. You have to stake that in the ground and say, no, this is the truth, right? Uh, and then live up to it. it kind of uh, maybe coming full, full circle here, right? One of the reasons why I try to um, kind of maintain this uh, uh, sense of brand safety and kind of uh, professionalism in how I interact online is because I want people to go, oh yeah, Josh, like he's worth paying th this much on a project because we know that he's going to go about it in a professional manner. Uh, you know, um, I, I have seen so many times, right, uh, a project get going, get off the ground, and then somebody who's involved with the project do something that. Uh, causes trouble where they'll you know either make some poor decision or or say something uh, in bad taste and suddenly right uh, they're removed from the project and the project has to get started from the ground up again and and all of this trust that they have built uh, has been 
um, broken. Uh, right. and, and so it is a, a very intentional move on my part to say, you know what? I'm going to make certain that there is no shadow of a doubt, right? That, that people can put that trust in me and my brand that I'm not going to do something harmful to them and their brand. Um, because when you interact as a professional in a professional manner, treating people, uh, as if this is a business and you're trying to build a reputation to, uh, you know, be, be like, you know, um, successful. If you start engaging like that, even in a hobby, uh, kind of uh, actual like practice, right? Even if you're just streaming like for fun on your channel, or just you know, I'm gonna write a, a, a supplement just for fun, just for kicks and giggles, or you know, I'm gonna run one game a week uh, professionally, just just for fun. If you approach that as a just for fun, haha, you know, like I'm just playing around. It's games. It's not really that serious. Um, you are without even realizing it. I think building a brand where people go, okay, this isn't serious to them, right? This right. isn't, you're not approaching yeah. this with the, the mentality that I want to see on a project that lives up to these professional standards. And so it's very important to, from the get go, build this brand of, no, I, I'm doing this professionally, even if it is one day a week, even if it is one game a week, or, you know, I publish one supplement every six months, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, whatever it is, whatever it is that you're doing, it's very important to like future proof that, right? Right. How am I going to set the groundwork now for people to know that this is real to me, right? I, I'm not doing this because uh, I'm bored. I'm not doing this because it's the fun thing in the moment. I'm doing this because this is uh, important for me to act in such a manner to go about this in such a manner that shows its priority in my life. Um, and, and, and yeah, I feel like I'm not quite capturing what it is. I'm actually trying to capture with my words here. Um, so I'll, I'll just kind of try to, to summarize once by saying the mentality with which you approach anything, be it a, a hobby uh, or or something more professional, especially if you are doing content creation with it in any any capacity. If you're trying to make money from it in any capacity, even if it's just something you're like, I'm going to experiment with and see if it's something I want to do, and then you do it and you decide you don't want to do it. If you engage as if this was your full time job, in terms of uh, the level of care you put into something. Uh, the ways that you interact with people, uh, treating it, uh, you know, professionally, uh, in terms of make sure that you, uh, in an email or a DM, uh, talk as if, uh, this is a business interaction. Um, you don't have to be, you know, dear sir or ma'am, please review <laughs> this, uh, message. Would you be available on Tuesday? Uh, per my last email. <laughs> right, right. But it can be as simple as, Hey, Friday, thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. It was a great time. Uh, if you ever want to do something else in the future, let me know. Thanks. Maybe throw in one emoji, 
right? Yeah, I'm, I'm an emoji happy does. guy, but, but but don't don't throw in too many emojis, or it's gonna be right. like oh, like like, like and th- that's a silly example. Emojis like you know. Demi I, have so I have so much to say. I have so much to say. I was but, taking notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting away from my point here. Approach whatever you do in terms of content creation as if it could become your full-time job. Don't uh, treat it flippantly. Don't say, oh, well, this is a part-time thing or a hobby thing for me, so I don't have to act as though I am a professional. There are certainly people who their brands are being very casual and very, uh, you know, um, uh, I'm, I'm, how do I put this nicely? It's all uh, a facade. <laughs> they, they, they put um, a little bit of unprofessionalism in their brand in terms mm. of the way that they talk about things or the way that they approach things. They're very, you know, uh, uh, relaxed about that. Behind the scenes, if that person is trying to find success, they are still treating it very professionally. And the brand that they're making is just, I want to be very approachable in what I do. But if you don't treat it like work, if you aren't on top of things, if you aren't um, engaging in a way that um, shows that you care and that this is something that that is important to you and um, uh, is something that you value enough to do right and engage in a way that um, demonstrates that you're going to have a hard time. Absolutely. Oh my God. Okay. All right, here we go. Are you ready? Yeah. Push. <laughs> I have so much. I have, I have so much. I only have one speed. Okay. And let's go. All right. So intentionality. I talk with that so much with so many new professional GMs. You have to be intentional about the decisions you make from everything from your your brand, your uh, the way that you prop yourself up or talk to people, the way that you run your ads. Everything in your ad has to be intentional and be there for a reason. If your thumbnail and your title don't match, if it does not convey what you're trying to convey, it's worthless. Because then you get people into your product that are there for the wrong reasons, that are there with low commitment, that are there just for any game. You need to explain exactly what it is that you're selling them. Because if you don't, then you're just not going to get loyal customers. And if we go back to like a thousand true fans, which is a great model for anybody as a content creator in this digital age that we live in, you need to find the right fan. Not any fan. You need to find the right fan over and over and over and over because that is a person that is going to support you and whatever your, you know, uh, your business might be. For me, I have anywhere from 50 to 70 clients a week. And some of those are repeat clients and I just count them more than once, right? Or they're like once every two weeks or something like that. And I do the numbers differently for that. But essentially, 50 to 70 people pay me to play with me every single week. Why is that? When there are thousands of other professional DMs who are two or three times less than me, it's because I have built my brand up a certain way and I've moved my storytelling to be the way that it is. And I present that right away in my advertisements. So I don't get a ton of people uh, quickly. I mean, I built my brand up very quickly because I know what I'm doing in that respect. And I know marketing and I know sales. And I, you know, I'm very happy to share that with people. And people have seen a lot of success with that. And really, you don't have to know 
the ins and outs of like marketing and sales to do well on like start playing games or demi plane or roll 20 forms or whatever you might be doing or where you might be as far as where you run your professional games. You just have to know what is it that you are doing. And once you know what it is that you are doing and you can convey that in a very succinct way, then you're going to be successful. And there's not a huge like hurdle to get over. You just have to get your first table. Once you have your first table, you're going to learn so much about what it is that your product is, and you're going to be able to convey that better and better and better and better. That's why I run six Curse of Strahd games a week. I would run more, and people would still like buy seats in those games, but I have to run different games because a lot of my players play more than once a week with me um, because they like my storytelling. So I would run... 12 Curse of Strahd games a week if if I if it wouldn't drive me nuts. Six is enough for me. Yeah, yeah. But um, and we see that kind of thing uh in going back to pricing, okay? What we found on Start Playing Games, and this is um percentages from like Devin and Start Playing the, the founder, and uh they can they they express a lot of these statistics to us and they're doing much better about making a lot of the statistics more available in the future so that people can tell why is this working, why is this not working? Because they want people to be successful. Obviously, they take the 10% from marketing and everything else, and it's a great system that they have for that 10%. Um, but what they found was the free conversions for signups for players that are looking for free games, guess what the percentage is that they sign up for a paid game after they play a free game? I'm going to assume it's high. It's probably in the realm of like 75%. It is less than 10%. Really? Correct. Okay, so if, so if they're looking up, for a free game, they're just, that's it. They don't want yep. a paid game. Hmm. Correct. Hmm. It's a totally different market. Just hmm. like someone who comes into like, and we see this in the pricing too, and this is a little more anecdotal, but I have noticed this and a lot of professional teams have noticed this. When you're in the 10 to $20 range, you have a lot of, player problems of entitlement as soon as you leave that the entitlement leaves because the people understand if you're paying a bit more that you're gonna get the exact experience that you should expect and that's conveyed to you properly and people you like you've gotten over the biggest hurdle is are you interested in the paid game that's not like going from ten dollars to thirty dollars is not a big hurdle the biggest hurdle is are you gonna pay money for this are you going to pay money to respect my time as a professional? And me, like I'm sitting on, I'm moving my prices to 40 and $45. Some of my games are already at that right now. So I'm running 200 to $250 tables right now, which for me, I'm in the demographic where I'm in the top 1% of content creators in tabletop anywhere, which is not a ton of money. But in 2023, I'm going to make $100,000 doing this. And I want to prove that tabletop can be something that people can use for their business and or there should be money in this industry and there's no reason why there isn't, especially with the boom of D&D right now. There's absolutely no reason why there shouldn't be money in, in this industry. It costs me for the vineyard. It's going to cost me if I like as soon as I like get through and I pay all my writers, which I'm currently working through with the money that's extra from start playing games. It's not I'm not going to the Bahamas. I'm paying my writers. <laughs> um it's going to cost me about $25,000 for my writers that I'm paying for the vineyard, which includes my labor, of course. I'm writing over half the book. So I'm paying out of pocket 
even though I'm writing half the book, I am paying out of pocket about $12,000 for writers. It's going to be about 30000 for art. So we're already at $55,000, right? That doesn't yeah. include marketing or any of this other stuff. So like when we run the Kickstarter, the Kickstarter is probably going to be like sixty or $70,000. And I see all these Kickstarters that are like, hey, we, we, we're super low. Like we're at eighteen, twenty thousand, 20000 But maybe they have like only one or two writers. But it's like the mm -hmm. same amount of density that like the book that we're producing. And maybe their quality is lower. I know my quality is super high because our contributors are S tier. But like the the point being like there's no reason why you shouldn't either build up a brand to support that price point or you shouldn't uh, put in the extra effort to convince people or convey to people this is a quality product. Right. And part of our advertising is really like showing these previews because I'm a brand new like game studio creative team or whatever. A lot of my contributors are not, of course, they have their own like very well-established brands. But we're putting out the previews and people have seen the previews and I've never heard someone say after they see the preview, like, that's not worth like top dollar. Every yeah. every single time yeah. they're like, they're really excited about it. And people spending instead of $50, $60 or $70 is conceivable. Mm -hmm. And I'm just not going to listen to people who think otherwise. Like, don't buy it then. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there's something... <clears throat> Yeah, talking about Kickstarters raising, you know, kind of setting their, their hey, break-even point at very low amounts. Um, I, I think there's something really interesting there in the mentality. Um, and I've seen, uh, you know, even if I'm not, like, actively backing uh, Kickstarters uh, or, or, or whether I am, I, I like to just kind of scroll through all of the tabletop Kickstarters and see what's out there and see kind of, what the different price points are, what people are offering, um, and you know what what each of them kind of considers like uh, you know a, a fully fundraised goal, um, and I, I think there's a couple of a couple of things that that we do often see in this space, uh, particularly uh, as it relates to um, you know our, our, our Kickstarters, especially, um, uh, and the first thing that immediately jumps out is um, I. I I think folks who do these Kickstarters are either not actually paying themselves anything, which is possible, one. That's what I or, hear. That's sure. what I've heard from a lot of them, yeah. It is possible, one. Or two, in the process of project management, they have not actually calculated out all of the costs that go into a project. Because you could certainly put something together on a shoestring budget. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if, if you were to pay for, um, I don't want to say uh, a less talented artist, but a cheaper artist who perhaps either is, you know, not um, uh, as experienced and so doesn't charge as much, or perhaps <clears throat> based on whatever it is they're asking for, or saying, you know, this is uh, a... A, a cheaper style of art, perhaps, um, or you know, maybe an artist who just doesn't value their work as much. You can certainly um, cut those costs down. You can cut those costs down if you're doing like all of the art yourself and choose not to pay yourself. Right, that's part of it. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it. But um, <clears throat> I've heard somewhere that like the kind of prime uh, range in terms of dollar amount 
for a Kickstarter, uh, a single Kickstarter pledge is if you can get folks to the point where they're willing to spend somewhere between 50 and $100 on a Kickstarter and feel like they're getting good value for what's coming on that Kickstarter, that is like the sweet spot where you can give them something cool, something exclusive, some physical product perhaps, definitely at least the digital product. But that kind of price range in and around the $75 area is the bit where folks will go, yeah, I can I can pay this much and it's going to be worth it to me, and particularly for books. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to um, uh, say that that's universal for all, all kinds of Kickstarters, but particularly in, in tabletop for, for tabletop books. Um, but finding enough things to make it valuable to that point where you are also not paying an arm and a leg out of pocket to get to that point is, I think, the challenge that a lot of uh, folks on Kickstarter have. Um, and, and we're kind of getting to uh, an, an area where I would not say that I'm a subject matter expert so much as I've had a lot of conversations with folks who are subject matter experts. So take this with a grain of salt, mm-hmm. right? You're getting secondhand knowledge here. Right. Um, but I think one of the, the kind of key things there is as you're structuring this uh, Kickstarter, is you want to structure it in such a way that it makes the most sense to back at that tier for what you're getting. But part of that is something that's very simple and easy for you to produce at a relatively low cost to yourself. Um, That's why I think we see a lot of things like, you know, pins and stickers and, you know, dice sets that can be mass produced for a relatively low amount of money and things like that, because that's part of the incentive structure that makes that an appealing price point because, oh, well, yeah, I'm getting this thing and I'm getting that thing. I'm getting whatever thing. But, you know, you're maybe paying $15 ahead for an extra $30 of uh, pledge Product. there. Um, and so the, the, the big challenge, I think, especially for folks who are running these Kickstarters who are saying, hey, you know, we want to raise $2,000 or $10,000, and that's going to be our break-even cost, is they are not thinking about, okay, one, how do I not only pay for this project, but then start to build up the revenue needed to pay for the next project? Mm -hmm. And two, and I think this is the biggest shortcoming in like 90% of tabletop Kickstarters, is they're not ready to market their product until it's live on Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you can take some time and do some marketing well before the Kickstarter launch and Mm -hmm. say, hey, here are the things that I'm working on. This is going to be so cool. I've got a preview. Let me show it off. If you can't have, you know, a quick start guide of some variety, even if it's just, you know, here's 10 pages of preview uh that's mostly done you know obviously contingent on you know a final pass from the editors before it goes to print or whatever right but here here's some preview stuff for you to check out kickstarter launches if you're not kind of building uh that brand awareness in advance 
you've already uh, conceded. Basically, uh, you know, given yourself only a, a, a 50% chance of success, right? Yep. You're, you're sabotaging yourself before you get started. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw recently a tweet from uh, uh, a journalist in the tabletop space, mm-hmm. uh, which said, if you are reaching out to me about uh, coverage for a new Kickstarter and the Kickstarter is already live, it is too late. I yep. need uh, at least 30 days notice, 60 to 90 preferred, so that they have time to, okay, what is my angle on this story? Let me talk to you. Let me get some quotes about it. What's the mm-hmm. actual approach here? And then take the time to actually turn that into a well-written piece of journalism. You can't do that right. overnight, uh, especially yeah. not when you have other deadlines and other things that are actually on your plate and you know you've got to get this out today and you know you got to get this out next week. You can't just let me drop everything that I'm actually actively working on and getting paid for to go and do this thing as you know a favor to somebody else. You really need to... Yeah. Um, be thinking months in advance uh, in order to have a successful Kickstarter launch. And the more that you can use art assets and previews like you've been doing, the more you're going to, when you launch, have that first $10,000 raised in you know five, yeah. 10 minutes because they're all waiting for it to come out. And then- right. If you can get those early uh, funding uh, badges, then suddenly Kickstarter's like, oh, this is a good project. Let us do our own marketing for this. And then secretly you've gamed the system because now Kickstarter is going and running Facebook ads for you saying, hey, do you like tabletop gaming? Here's an ad. Check it out. Come check out our products. Um, It's wild how, um, how much of a difference a couple of months of planning can make and every Kickstarter that I have seen that has kind of fallen through and failed, at least in terms of, you know, tabletop supplements has oftentimes been no one knew what it was about, right? right? Like they didn't even know that it was going to be a thing. They hadn't heard about it and we're getting close to the deadline and we're still, you know, however many thousands of dollars short. Um, I, I think there's one exception to that rule, a Kickstarter that, I had seen market itself really well and didn't quite hit it. And I think the key thing there was there was no incentive to get people to up their pledge to that Ooh. higher dollar amount, which gotcha. is kind of the second big piece. Uh, and, and, you know, again, uh, I'm going to just couch all this in a small disclaimer. I'm not an expert. I have never run a Kickstarter myself, but I know right. enough people who have run Kickstarters and have had enough conversations about it that I am sharing insight from other people not from myself mm-hmm. take it all with a grain of salt that i could be you know misquoting things um but the general i think uh, uh heart of the issue is one how you market yourself and prepare to market yourself well in advance is very important and then two the structure of the kickstarter to bring enough value Sure, you've got a couple of low tiers for if someone just wants the PDF, right? You can do that, 20, 30 bucks, whatever, perhaps. But, okay, you want to start getting some cool physical stuff? That's where we're looking at 50, 75 before shipping because that's mm-hmm. where we're going to start to actually um, make enough profit that this becomes a sustainable thing that you can do. Um, yeah. And so there's a couple of pieces there and it's 
it's this interesting like game of chess that you're playing. Okay, how do I tactically, you know, do this over here and do this over here? You know, uh, I can only do so much. I maybe need to bring on some people to help with this and maybe pay some people. At what point is it actually worth it to pay someone to like do social media promotion for you or, or this thing or that thing for you? Um, uh, because the challenge with running a Kickstarter as one person is you don't have the bandwidth to do all of that. Yeah. Uh, and so how do you balance that? Um, and, 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 uh, make the necessary investment to see it succeed while also not over investing in something like paid promotions or, or things like that, because I think that's a temptation on social media. Be like, Oh, well, if I just pay, you know, to, to, to get some advertising out, people are going to see it and then it'll do all the work for me. But Anytime you do paid promotions, right, then all of your subsequent posts that aren't paid promotion are uh, going to perform less well because that social media platform now knows that they can get you to pay money to perform well, and then they're never going to let your posts do naturally as well as uh, they had previously been performing uh, mm-hmm. through paid promotion, unless you've got something really amazing that folks are naturally inclined to. Whereas if you could just like, write really, really strong marketing copy and promotional copy and just do it all through native marketing and word of mouth. It's hard to do. It's really hard to do. But um, the moment you start trying to pay for some of those things and up your expenses, it's just going to kind of keep keep increasing and increasing in, in this exponentially growing bubble of stuff that you have to pay for. Um, so what's the solution, Josh? I can ask that rhetorically because I, I have a suggestion. <laughs> uh, I think the solution one is to um, uh, do a lot of trial and error, right? Write good, write good stuff, right? Hone your craft. Um, uh, you know, the reason that I have tweets that sometimes do well now is because I've been uh, actively going back and reviewing metrics on Twitter every day for the last three years. Mm-hmm. um and go okay this pr- post performed well why what is it about it that is appealing mm-hmm. to people um this post didn't perform well and i thought it was going to why what did i miss um but then also uh, a lot of it is kind of going back to that uh, kind of intentionality piece if you go into something and you treat it like this is your business this is worth your time and your investment you are setting yourself up for people to take you seriously, building that expectation, that brand, that this is something of value uh, and are also going to, I think, see some more success there. So uh, I don't have a single solution. I don't think there's one silver bullet, but I think there's a couple of strategies that you can take, things that we've already talked about for the most part. Um, So so maybe, you know, uh, my solution is uh, go back and listen to this podcast again (laughs) And take notes of all the good things that we said in the first, you know, hour and change. One addition. Surround okay. yourself with people smarter than you. Oh, yeah. And that is something that I have tried to do in the most um, reciprocal manner that we were talking about. Mm. And do right by people. Express that you are genuine in doing right by them. And then follow yeah. through. And then that's really all pe- most people need is like... Oh, this person's a good person and they want to see me succeed as much as, you know, I'm helping them. Yeah. And that's it. 
that's literally it. And then yeah. you will have a lot of doors open for you just by being a genuine person that also wants to help you succeed under this yoke of capitalism. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Good point. Um, yeah. We all, I, we all gotta live. You know. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there is something to be said about treating people as human beings. Um, and. I'm, I'm not going to unlock the mini rant. Uh, <laughs> We've got time for it. Sometimes. The best thing you can do is treat people like people. And. If you know that you. Can't do something. Don't do it. Right. And so if, if someone is asking for a commitment from you and you say, you know, what, I'm not actually convinced that I can do that. Say no. Right. Yeah. It's better to not be part of a project um, that you don't have bandwidth for than to be part of the project and then be the one causing the project to struggle. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And similarly, right, in professional spaces, right? Um, uh, if you say you're going to do something, follow through and do it and be the t- kind of person that people want to work with because you are communicating clearly and effectively mm-hmm. and are being respectful of the other people's uh, time and invested interests in said project. Um, And then I I think most importantly, not just, you know, being genuine about it, uh, about interactions is being honest with yourself about what you're looking for from things, from, from Mm -hmm. a relationship, from a project. Um, Be honest with yourself first and foremost, and then make sure that you are not doing anything um, that is going to keep you from having that be a success, right? So if right. you're saying, I want to get into uh, streaming because I want to build a brand for myself, and then you're doing things on stream that are going to be harmful to your brand, yeah, you're not succeeding. If you are saying, yeah. hey, I want to go into this convention or this event or, or this online space and do some networking, and then you are engaging in a way that is making networking hard mm-hmm. by, uh, you know, <clears throat> interacting with people in a way that is off-putting. If you are, um, uh, gosh, there's so many. Networking is a whole different topic. Uh, yeah. If you are doing many of the things that folks oftentimes do uh, when they are um, not sure what to do and then go about handling that uncertainty poorly. Um, uh, for instance, right, you know, there's folks at, uh, I'll just talk about conventions because I'm thinking about conventions right now. Um, th- 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 there, there are people who will, you know, come up and just like be there and glue themselves to you and not like take a hint that, hey, like I need to go do something else. Or hey, like, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but this conversation is over. Leave me alone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or also people who can, uh, you know, be super overbearing, insert themselves into that. anything and everything going on. Uh, there, there are folks who, uh, in any conversation, um, always, because they're so focused on networking, are always turning it to focus on, here's what I've got going on, and here's what I want to talk about, and not actually listening to other people, right? Like listening will go a long way towards building great relationships. Um, there's so many... Like I said, networking is a whole different conversation. There's so many 
faux pas there. Yeah. All I can really say is if you go into any conversation, any project with the intention first to listen and learn and second to, okay, here's what I'm doing to contribute, contribute value. Here's what I'm hoping to get out of this. Not because that's not a priority to you, but because you realize that the first step should always be to make sure that our goals are aligned. We're pulling the same direction. We're not, you know, actually fighting each other or, or causing conflict. Um, and, and Honestly, frankly, the more you can go into projects with folks and learn from them, the better that is going to help the next project and the next project and the next project. Mm-hmm. Learning from people who are smarter than you, like you said earlier, is great. Uh, I think especially finding people who are experienced at the things you want to be good at. And whether that is just watching them from afar and learning from how they operate or saying, hey, you know what? I would love to have a chance sometime to sit down and talk and and pick your brain about this. Can I buy you a coffee? Can we, you know, hop on a quick Zoom or Discord call or whatever it is? Um, there are so many great ways that you can learn from the pros. And there's so many great folks out there who are sharing their knowledge willingly. Great newsletters, great websites, great blogs, great YouTube series. Um, uh, they're, they're tabletop folks who part of their Twitch streaming is answering questions and talking about this thing and that mm-hmm. thing and the other thing. Um, Jen Kretschmer is someone that comes to mind where she has two streams a week. And oftentimes, uh, you know, if you have a question about, hey, you know, talk to me about freelancing in the tabletop space or talk to me about, you know, navigating this project or that project. Um, you know, within the constraints of NDA, she'll talk about whatever uh, she can if you have a question about how would I go about doing something like this or what can you tell me about this experience that was like, you know, a lesson learned or something. Um, There's certainly folks out there that are very willing to share their experiences. Um, and Credit to Jen. I will say the first show pitch that I put together, Jen Gretchen helped me with because she showed me how show pitches work. Yeah, yeah. Because she's in that space and, you know. She's brilliant. Yeah. Really, yeah. really, uh, I think one of the um, foremost experts in terms of putting together uh, shows and uh, really great projects. Um, and, and I think, honestly, like she doesn't get the credit that she deserves for, for being as good at that as, as she is. Um, uh, in order to stop myself from rambling, I, I will uh, just kind of put... I think. <laughs> Put the, the, the bullet point in to say um, it is important that you know what you're trying to get out of any space that you're in. You have intentionality in how you engage towards that goal, but you also cannot treat people as steps on a ladder. You cannot right. treat people as if their only value to you is in getting you to where you want to be. If you right. can't at the very least be friendly and let them, you know, have a mildly reciprocal relationship, even if it's just to kind of ask about your interests and maybe, right. uh, you know, have a conversation about it. You're, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're doing them a disservice. Uh, and you're going to find that folks aren't interested in helping you if you are only interested in helping yourself. And with that, 
because I have to pick my daughter up from preschool and because this is a great place to stop us. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Josh. Uh, I I really would like to have you back sometime. You don't have to answer on air. <laughs> I'm not fear pressuring you. <laughs> we, we, we'll trade some messages. We'll see what makes uh-huh. sense. I'm certainly open to coming back. I think there's a, a variety of topics that we mm-hmm. could uh, get into more. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, this has been a great, great conversation. I'm glad that we got to talk about some of the things that I wanted to learn from you, yeah. uh, hear, hear your, your, your perspective about, uh, I hope that, uh, I, I have, uh, been able to talk a little bit about some of the things that were, uh, of interest to you and, uh, dear listener at home. I hope that you also uh, didn't hate the sound of my voice for, for as long as we talked. I don't, I don't think so. Um, my audience isn't that big either. So. <laughs> Dear listeners at home, as you grow and grow to love this podcast, uh, thank you for not hating my voice. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm I think I'm like a hundred listeners or something like that right now. But um, yeah, so thank you so much. And um, yeah, thank you to you listeners. Um, I suppose I'll hit the button now. I always forget to do this. One one second listener. And I don't edit these at this point because I don't make money doing this and this is the last thing the very last thing i don't make enough money doing this podcast Mm -hmm. so i don't edit them but when i do when i do they will so what you're saying is that if people wanted uh you know a more professionally produced podcast they could pay you a little bit more money to make it happen they can sign up for my patreon and that's how i know that they're interested in the content do it right now go go hit the button in this exact moment great thanks Okay. okay bye